We want to welcome you today. I wish you a happy Mother's Day today. We're going to continue our series in Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Nehemiah chapter 10, which is page 406 in the black Bibles that you have under your chairs. Uh, So page 406, Nehemiah 10. We've called the series Repairing the Ruins. And so because of God's justice, he had exiled his people because they repeatedly dishonored him, disobeyed him, tried to live life without him. And so he said, okay, I'm going to send you into exile. Uh, The Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire came in and conquered them and scattered them. Um, But God is also gracious. He's a forgiving God. He's a gracious God. He's a promise-keeping God that says, I'm still going to work supernaturally through the people of Israel, through the city of Jerusalem, even though they've continued to sin. And so I'm going to gather them back uh, to the city of Jerusalem. We're going to repair what's been ruined. We're going to repair what's been broken. And so as we've been studying this, we've been uh, seeing the similarities. Uh, We all know there's differences. Anybody that picks up and tries to read their Bible knows there's gaps, right? There's stuff that's just different. There's stuff we don't get because we live in the 21st century. We live in a different nation in a different time. We know that. But there's also similarities. They were trying to build a city to broadcast God's name, to say, this is who God is. God is holy and he's gracious and inviting people into a relationship with him. So they are doing, in a sense, the same thing that we're doing today, trying to build a place and a people that would honor God. Um, So this week we're calling it commitment. We're going to look at the last verse of 9 and then all of chapter 10. So primarily Nehemiah chapter 10, we're calling it commitment. We see the people responding vigorously, responding strongly and committing to follow God. So what does that look like for us? What did that look like for them? There's a famous uh, definition of commitment that's illustrated uh, by a lot of farmers. I've heard football coaches use this as well. You may have heard about um, what it looks like to provide breakfast for the farmer. The farmer likes to eat eggs and bacon. I love to eat eggs and bacon. I'm not even a farmer. Um, Eggs and bacon are a wonderful way to start your day, right? And you can see the definition of commitment when you look at the pig and the chicken. It said that the chicken was involved, but the pig was committed. (laughs) The chicken was involved, but the pig was committed. So just let that kind of sink in. Let the the wisdom of that meditate on that for a minute as we read. And as I said, we're going to read the last verse of 9 and then go into chapter 10. I'm going to skip some verses, read a couple more verses in 1028. So follow with me here. So 938 says, Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Zariah, Jeremiah. And I'm going to skip those names, let you read those on your own time. We're going to jump down to verse 28. So a lot of people are committed. A lot of people are committed. Verse 28, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. Let me pray for us, and then we will um, ask the Lord to teach us. God, we pray that you would teach us this morning. We pray your spirit would meet us here. 
Uh, you know the distance and the, the confusion and the things that can distract us because this was a different people in a different time and in a different place. Uh, but Lord, we know you're the same God. And we know that you continue to work through your people. And we know that you continue to be absolutely holy. And we know that we continue to be invited into a relationship with you through your grace, most clearly seen through Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. So God, we gather this morning with hope that we have something to learn. We have hope that we can be accepted into your presence, that we can uh, be pleasing in your sight because we see that you are a gracious and forgiving God through Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. So as I said, um, the chicken's involved in breakfast, but the pig is committed, right? And here we have this kind of just absolute throwing themselves in commitment. We have the people of God saying, we will do what God has asked us to do. We're going to do it. We're going to be involved, not just in uh, the peripheral issues of our life, but we're going to be committed in giving our life to what God has called us to do. And the first thing I think we need to key on as we move through this story of the people of God's commitment in Nehemiah's day is why. Why are they committed? Why have they committed to the things of the Lord? Why commitment? And we see that in verse 38. It gives us a big clue when it says, because of all this. Look at verse 38, the last verse of of chapter 9. It says, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Because of all this. Because of all this, we make a commitment. So they start off with why. Uh, In a lot of texts, that last verse of chapter 9 is actually with uh, chapter 10. And of course, you know that, uh, maybe you don't know this, the, the verse numbers and the chapter numbers are added much later, right? We, we don't consider that to be like part of Scripture. It's just something we've added later to guide us. Um, so in the flow of this, most scholars would say, verse 38 is starting what's happening here in chapter 10. So because of all this, they make these commitments. Because of all this, they make these oaths. Because of this, they make a firm covenant. They cut a covenant with God. They make promises to him. So the question is, because of all what? Right? Because of all what? What are they talking about? Well, they're, they're talking about everything that just happened in chapter 9, right? Where were we last week in chapter 9? In chapter 9, they rehearsed the story of God. They said, this is who God is. This is who we are. This is what's happened again and again in our history. And again and again in our history, God has been great and made all things perfect. We've brought sin. He's brought grace. And we see this replayed over and over and over again. Theologians like to talk about the creation, fall, redemption, flow of history. And Israel has played that out again and again in their own history. And so that's what they did in chapter 9. I encourage you all last week to read through chapter 9 as as a cliff notes to the whole history of God's people. And again and again, they were rebellious and stiff-necked and turned away, but God was gracious. There's a great summary verse in chapter 9 that that lets us see that, that kind of crystallizes it for us. So because of all this, look at verse 31. Because of all this, because of all this, verse 31 says, back in chapter 9, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. You're a gracious and merciful God. You didn't end them. You didn't just say, I'm done but you showed mercy. That's our story too. If, if it's not your story, you probably have a pride issue that we need to deal with on another occasion. But for those of us that know God, we know that God has been gracious to us. We deserve judgment, 
We deserve to be abandoned, but God didn't abandon us. He continued to run after us. And for those of us that live on this side of the cross, it's most clearly seen through the cross. It's most clearly seen through what Jesus did for us, being punished for our sin and giving us his free righteousness. And that's the why. That's why we're committed. So it says, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. Because of all this. Because of what? Because of what God has done. Because of who God is. Because of God's character, his grace, his reliability. Another way to say it would be, because of God's commitment to us, we commit to him. See it clearly in Jesus coming after us, but it's been seen again and again in the Old Testament as well. God's continued to show mercy. God's continued to forgive. God's continued to save and rescue his people. And so the people of God in the Old Testament, just like us in the New Testament, we commit not to trick God into loving us, right? We don't commit to trick God into being impressed with how awesome and holy we are. We commit because God was committed to us. We commit because God was faithful to us. And it's so important that we get that order correct in our spiritual lives because so often we reverse it. We watch from a distance people that seem to have a relationship with the Lord. We see them committing and we see, man, I don't have my stuff together. Maybe if I were more committed, God would love me because I know God doesn't love me now. So maybe if I get my stuff together, God will love me. But the gospel story is God comes to you while we were yet sinners. Romans says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so the story is we don't have our stuff together and God is so committed to us in love, he comes after us and forgives us. And so then we respond in commitment to him. We've got to get that order right. We've got to get that order right. Why do you commit? You don't commit to trick God into liking you. The New Testament word that's used again and again for what Jesus accomplished on the cross is propitiation. And this word, um, a lot of liberal scholars don't like the word because it implies that God was angry at us, like those fickle uh, Greek gods, right? Um, and I would say, well, okay, he, he wasn't angry at us in the same fickle, immature, soap opera way that the Greek gods were, but he was very certainly angry at our sin and our rebellion. And what people miss about that word is it's not so much about his anger, it's about him being pleased with us. The word propitiation means God was pleased with us. He, he made himself happy with us. So translate that into everyday life. You can talk to God and know that he's pleased to hear from you because of what Jesus did. You, you can have a relationship with God and know that God wants to be in the same room with you, that God likes you. He's happy with you. He's pleased with you. So don't miss the impact of that. Why do you commit to God? You commit to God because he's committed to you. You commit to God because he's worth following. You make things firm in your life because God is worth pursuing because he pursued us first. It's a response to his grace. So again, 938, because of all this, we make a firm covenant is responding to everything that God has been and everything that God has done for us. What does make a firm covenant mean? What is a covenant? Uh, a quick definition for a covenant would be a relationship of promise between two or more people. Um, it's somewhat similar to the word we use today, contract. Um, but contract really has a much more consumeristic kind of feel to it in our world, right? We're always kind of thinking selfishly of contracts. And those of us that uh, use computers, we sign a thousand contracts a day that we never read, right? So that, that word is kind of losing its, its weight uh, in our world. So a covenant is something deeper, something more relational. Um, it's something more um, community 
oriented. You see throughout the Old Testament, God making covenants with his people. Um, a, a secondary definition is it's a relationship of promise that is formalized often with ceremonies or signs. So in the Old Testament, it was very common for people to make a covenant by cutting apart animals and walking through the blood between the animal pieces. Y'all probably did this last time you bought a house, right? It's pretty common in our culture. I'm just kidding. Most of you, I don't think, did that. Um, So they would split the animals. They'd walk through the blood, and they would say together, this was their way of signing a contract, may it come upon me as it has come upon these animals. You know, my feet are dripping with blood now. And this is a firm, solemn solemn, uh, reminder and sign and seal of this covenant we've made together. It's really fascinating to see that worked out in the covenant that God makes with Abraham in Genesis. Uh, You might remember that in Genesis, the same kind of format is followed. The animals are split open. And instead of Abraham walking through the animals and the blood with God, Abraham's knocked out and laid over on the side. And God walks through. And God says, may it come upon me if I don't keep my promises to you. And he says, Abraham, may it come upon me if you don't keep your promises to me. And that's what we see come to fruition on the cross. God says, I am paying the penalty for your inability and unwillingness to keep your side of the covenant. I'm going to keep both sides of the covenant. So why do we make a covenant with God? We make a covenant with God because his commitment to us is, is too good to pass up. He's made covenant with us in his grace. He's loved us. What, what are some of the places we do this today? So like I was referencing earlier, a lot of you, when you buy houses, walk between dead animals. Um, there's other ways we do that too, right? Just signing contracts with ink, promising things in contracts. Um, some of the ways we see it uh, solemnized with ceremony would be in a baptism, right? Or in a wedding ceremony. A lot of us are familiar with a wedding ceremony. I have a picture here of people signing uh, the wedding license. When you get married, you have to sign a license. You register with the state. Uh, typically, the minister signs that, and the parties getting married sign that. What's interesting, I thought it was funny. Here, you see people signing it, and when I do weddings, uh, we'll often stage a picture as a way to have signs of the ceremony, right? There's a lot of things we do to kind of reinforce the seriousness of the commitment we're making, which are visual signs of this matters, this is important, this is serious to me. Uh, It's to the extreme that in in Bell County, when I sign a marriage license, um, it's already kind of a finished product, and I'm the only one that has to sign it, right? Like, that's just how it works. Nobody else has to sign it. The, The wedding couple has already done their work previously and filed their paperwork. They bring me this finished copy. I sign it and mail it in. That's all that's left to be done. But, but for the wedding pictures, often we'll, we'll stage pictures, right? We'll have the best man acting like he's signing it and the best girl. What is that? I always forget that. Best girl. Maid of honor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> best man, best girl. And uh, they're signing it, right? The witnesses, um, the husband and wife are signing. You know, so we're all kind of like acting like we're signing. It makes for better pictures, right? So, so we understand this intuitively. There are things we do to signify Things. The question is, should we be doing more of that in our spiritual life? Here, they're making oaths and promises. Um, it says that they uh, promised and made oaths and made these commitments. It says they sealed with their signatures. They cut a covenant is the literal language in the Hebrew for making a covenant. You would cut a covenant, like I said, because there's dead animals involved. So the question is, we do this sometimes. Should we do this more? Here we see them. Doing this, should that be more of a regular part of our spiritual life? 
I think there's two sides of it for us as Christians. Um, one side is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Many people see it as kind of a Protestant standard of theology. And it would say, um, in paragraph 22 of this kind of theological document, it would say it's completely appropriate to make vows and oaths and use those in worship today. So that's kind of a standard a lot of people go to. Um, so that's kind of one side of the spiritual house that we would say is kind of a spiritual background for us. We also, a lot of us have this other side of the house. It's more of kind of an Anabaptist restoration movement side that says, you know what, you shouldn't make promises because Jesus said in Matthew 5, don't make promises, right? Don't swear oaths. So we kind of have a tension in the Christian world. Some of us see that differently. Um, I would like to thread the needle between the two and say, it is okay, it is not a sin to make a solemn oath. It's repeatedly done throughout Scripture. It's okay. So what is Jesus talking about in Matthew 5 where he says, don't do that? Right? say, like a lot of the things he was talking about in Matthew 5, he was attacking doing the external thing without having a heart. Doing the external action without a heart of commitment to God. And throughout Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Jesus and the prophets would say, it makes me sick that you go through the motions, yet you hate God in your heart. It's disgusting to me. So we often get mixed up about that, and we want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, oh, well, you should never, ever make an oath or swear or promise or anything. You know, so then we're thrown out. We can't do wedding ceremonies. We can't sign contracts. We can't swear on a Bible in court. You know, so people get confused about that. I would say it's okay to do those things, um, but just recognize that your commitment has to be a heart commitment first. It's got to be a heart commitment first. So in Matthew 5, he says it this way. Again, you've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn, right? But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And again, in context, I encourage you to go back and read Matthew 5, the whole thing, the whole flow of it. He just keeps hammering the religious hypocrites who were doing external things to try to trick themselves into loving God, but they didn't actually love God. So if you love God, sometimes it's helpful to do external things to mark that, right? Like, like I said, I think wedding ceremonies are great. I think it's great to solemnize our oaths and make these kinds of vows. I think um, baptism vows and commitments are great, but I would say at a much uh, more ground level uh, area, it's just good to make commitments and follow through, right? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. So what are things that you're committing to in your spiritual life? Again, you don't do them to trick God into loving you. God loves you. So because God loves you, what are you committing to? That would be my question. One of the ways I like to say this historically when I preach sermons is, what do you think the Holy Spirit is asking you to do next in your life? Say, take those simple actions. When the Holy Spirit convicts you, I need to read the Bible more, you don't necessarily need to stand up on a pedestal, um, cut yourself, sign a document, right? How about you just read your Bible more, okay? Or if you want to give more to the needs of the poor, to the ministries of the church. Again, I don't know that you need to split open some animals. I think maybe you could just obey. Maybe you could just do what the Spirit is convicting you to do. If you need to care better for those around you, if you need to stop being so short with people, or if you need to be a better encourager, what are next steps, what are tangible next steps you could take? And I would say, obey, obey. But remember, 
remember, keep the order straight. You don't obey to get God to love you. You obey because God loves you. You keep the order straight. We commit to him. Why? Because he's committed to us. Because of his love for us. Because of what God has done for us. So the next thing that we see as the story kind of unfolds is um, what you actually commit. Commit your life. Commit your life. The next two points will be kind of on the what side. This one is your life. He's calling us to commit our lives in verse 28, chapter 10, verse 28. It says, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So what I would say, this is a summary, is they're saying we're binding ourselves to obey God's law. We're committing our life. Then they list some specifics of what that looks like. And what I would interject is that they're talking about some specific um, friction points, some stuff that they were having issues with, right? Areas where it was hard for them to obey. So they say, in general, we're going to obey God. And then in the specifics, here's some specific ways we're going to obey God where it's been hard for us. And so we're just going to put it out on the table and say, yeah, we've kind of We've kind of messed this up, and here's some specific ways we're going to do better. We're going to obey God in these areas where we have not been obeying him. So again, just, just to uh, make clear, there is difference, right? They have, uh, they have these commandments to the ceremonial law. They have these, uh, this kind of, they're, they're bound to the ceremonial law, to the national law, as well as to the moral law. And as Christians today, we would say we're really just bound to the moral law. So universal principles of what is right and wrong, we would say, are summarized in the Ten Commandments, and we'd say they're still binding on us today. Um, Why would we say that's different, or are still binding on us today? I would say, well, the Ten Commandments have always been kind of separated. I mean, literally, they were separated, right? Like God wrote them on these stone tablets in this miraculous, scary interaction with Moses. Um, People rebelled, Moses broke them, God, you know, wrote them again, gave them back to him. Uh, and then at the center of their worship, they, they put the Ten Commandments in the box, in the ark, in the center of the Holy of Holies, right? So, I mean, there's a, there's a very real way in, in which the Ten Commandments are bracketed apart from the rest of God's law. So we read stuff in the Old Testament about we can't eat shrimp, and we say, oh, we're Christians, we can eat shrimp, that's cool. You know, like, there's part of God's Old Testament law that we say that's ceremonial, and it's now fulfilled, those ceremonies are fulfilled in Jesus, So in the past, those were pictures to help us see Jesus, to help see that God is holy and we need a sacrifice. So all those ceremonies now are fulfilled in Jesus. That's what Hebrews is written all about. So we, with uh, clear consciences, reject the ceremonial law and say, that's not for us anymore. That was for a different time. We also reject even their judicial system that was set up for a particular nation because now the church is multiple nations. Although I would also say, a lot of their judicial system was based on God's morality, so there's still a, a ton for us to learn there, right? So we still read the Old Testament. We still learn God's universal morality from the Old Testament, but basically the Ten Commandments are what is still binding on us today. Now, universally, Christians pretty much agree with that. Um, there's just kind of one place where Christians argue, and that's on the Sabbath, right? Because all of the commandments are restated very clearly 
in the New Testament, except for the one on the Sabbath. It's a little, it's a little you know, stated kind of differently when you read the New Testament. So basically, Christians all agree on at least nine commandments, and we're not sure on the tenth, that fourth commandment, the Sabbath. And what I would just throw out for something for you to think about, because we don't have time to do a whole sermon on the Sabbath, is it's ironic to me that the one commandment we have a hard time with agreeing with as Christians is the easiest one, right? That's the one where it says like, hey, just kick back and relax. <laughs> We're like, I'm not sure about that. That would be legalism, wouldn't it, if I rested? I don't know about resting. That sounds, that sounds like a Puritan or something. I'm not sure. So anyway, that's just my, go study that on your own time. Ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten you. Um, so basically, we know what's right and wrong by the Ten Commandments, or at least the nine. And they're saying, we will separate ourselves to God's law. We will obey what God tells us to do. And then they say, here's some specific areas where we haven't been doing so well, and we're going to specifically do it, commit our life in these ways. First thing they mention is separating themselves from the peoples of the lands. What does that mean? Does that mean they're racists? I think we need to press on this a little bit, because they talk about not marrying unbelievers as well later on. Um, What separating themselves from the people of the lands means is we're going to separate ourselves from those people down the street that practice live pornography as part of their ritual worship. We're going to say that's wicked, and we're not going to do that. We're going to separate ourselves from the people down the street in the lands that are sacrificing their children because they think that'll make the gods happy with them. That's what it means. It doesn't mean we're separating ourselves from the people of different colored skin. And we need to be very clear about that because there's this Old Testament language about separating themselves from other peoples and racists in history have used that to justify racism. And what we need to say is this Bible does not justify racism. And it was a sin when people in our past justified racism with this Bible. It was a sin. It was wrong. And it's led to all kinds of brokenness in our society. So we need to be absolutely clear about that. When you look at Jesus' genealogy, there were all kinds of people of the lands that were a part of his family. The people of Israel were certainly an ethnic community, but that ethnic community was always inviting in people from other ethnic groups. They were saying, come, worship the Lord. Come join us. Come be a part of what God is doing in the world. So that ethnic group was always uh, being entered in by other people of other ethnic groups. And so that's how God's people have always worked. It's much more clear in the New Testament. It's much more multi-ethne in the New Testament. But it was already happening in the Old Testament. So when they're saying we're going to separate ourselves, they're saying we're not going to do this, we're not going to do that, those sinful things that they are worshiping and making a practice of their religion. So they're going to obey God's law. They say they're not going to marry unbelievers, they're not going to give their children to marry unbelievers. I would say that still applies to us today. Paul's clear about that in 2 Corinthians 6 and 7. Um, so what I would say to you, if, if you're single, which is like half the people in Colleen, um, don't participate in missionary dating. What that means is don't date someone that hates God and think, they're cute, I can um, trick them into loving God too, and then we can be unified. No, date people that love God, that obey Him, that are committed to the same things that you're committed to. Um, you can be their friends, that's fine, but, but don't pursue these kind of relationships. Don't give yourself in marriage to people that don't row in the same direction as you. The, the New Testament and the Old Testament is clear about that. They also say we're not going to buy on the Sabbath. Um, we're going to have the seventh year rest of our crops and our debt. So again, what, what does this mean for us? What I would say and how this helps us to apply this today is this was an area where it was really hard for them to obey God. There's going to be areas in your life where it's hard for you to obey God. Why was it an er- so hard for them to obey this thing about the Sabbath? 
because they felt like they were going to miss out on some money, right? They're saying, well, I could make a lot more money if I was open seven days a week, but God's telling me I've got to op- open the store just six days a week, and that was a friction point. And I would say we have similar friction points in our culture today. Say so the two biggest friction points for us where it's hard for us to obey the Ten Commandments are when it comes to our money and when it comes to our sexuality. Those are two areas where we, we generally as a culture say, I'll obey God as, as long as it doesn't cost me anything. I'll obey God as long as he doesn't tell me how to indulge myself in sexual pleasure. And that's kind of where our culture is now. What I would encourage you, going back to the point before of why do we commit? We commit to God because he's shown himself faithful. We don't commit to God because everything he asks us to do is pleasant and easy. Does that make sense? So because God has shown himself faithful, I can step out in faith and say, well, this sin really seems fun to me. I believe God's made me that. I was born to enjoy this sin. I can say, you know what, though? I'm going to listen to what he says. I'm going to actually commit myself to obey him, even in the areas where it's painful and inconvenient, even at the friction points where I'm not so sure about God's wisdom. You know, he's proven himself through Jesus. He's been faithful when I have not been. So even if this intuitively feels like a good idea to break this commandment or break that commandment or indulge in this sin or indulge in that sin, I'm going to trust him even when it's painful. So I think that is what it looks like for us today to obey him, to follow him, to pursue him. We often get mixed up about this because in our society, especially in the Facebook world, we just kind of throw... Um, verbal bombs at each other, right? It's like this soundbite society, and you're either an old fuddy-duddy Christian that's a traditionalist and doesn't get it, or you're a progressive Christian that's smart enough to throw out God's law, right? Um, and we kind of we run from one side to the other. Um, so a lot of times, people think if you're saying you should obey God's law, that you're basically calling them to be Amish. Here's a picture of Amish people. And I would say we do need to be careful as I said before, that we don't confuse obedience to God's law and the central morality of the Ten Commandments. We don't want to confuse that with external rituals, as we said already. Um, and again, I don't, I don't mean any offense. Like some of you may be wearing a black vest and black pants. I don't mean any offense to you. If you want to dress that way, that's cool. That's awesome. Uh, I just was wearing black the other day, did a funeral. So I think the problem is when we say everyone in our community must dress this way. Because that's what holiness is. That's a confusing of the absolute standards of morality with these kind of external ex, uh, exhibitions of it, this, these external ways to display it. So we don't want to confuse that. But now here's the other caution. We can be the progressive Christians that are like, see, these are traditionalists, they don't get it, and we run way over to the other side of the ship and say, so today we have enough sense to, to know that when God wants me to be faithful to him, Really, he just means be faithful to that little voice in my own heart and just do whatever I want, right? That's the other side. There's a balance between those two extremes. There's a balance of committing your life to God, saying God actually gets to tell me what to do. That doesn't mean I'm going to be some kind of weird traditionalist that tells everybody to wear a black hat, but I still believe God gets to be the authority. His word is the standard. It's my job to be committed to him. So my question for you applicationally is, what are those areas in your life? Is it money? Is it sexuality? What are those areas where you're like, well, I'd like to obey God, but it's not convenient. I'd like to do what God says, but 
it's not as pleasurable as I would like it to be, so maybe I should just follow my own heart. I would challenge you to listen to what God says. Again, not to trick him into liking you, but because he's been faithful. Because he's proven himself faithful. Because he moved towards you first. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So then that gives us the boldness to trust him, to do what he says. The last thing that we see is that we should commit ourselves to God's house. Commit ourselves to God's house. Um, we were doing, when we started thinking about doing Nehemiah, uh, it's because we were looking at doing a building expansion, right? I don't know if y'all have been here with us the whole time. Someone told me the other day, they're like, it's so weird that you're doing Nehemiah and you're not asking for money every week for the building. Like people were confused by that. I was like, well, I didn't do Nehemiah as an excuse to ask, ask for building money every week. I just wanted to study Nehemiah because we were building and they were building and just wanted to learn together from Nehemiah, right? Like it, it doesn't have to be that deceptive. I would tell you it's exciting. I think we have just about everything we need for the building program. So as an aside, yay, that's exciting, right? Um, but here they're saying we are going to commit to support God's house. Let's, let's read the text in verse 32. He says, We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel, it's money, for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of of the house of our God. So again, they're doing this stuff. These are the ceremonies that they were doing to broadcast who God was through these ceremonial signs to say this is the kind of God that we serve. He's just, he's gracious, this is who he is. Nations come to him, enjoy him, know him, and they're giving financially to support this work. Verse 34, we the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to your father's houses, our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it's written in the, in the law. So they're casting lots, and I think just the easiest way to understand that would be like they put ping pong balls in a machine and they cranked it, and they would pull out a ping pong ball with their number that said, you get to bring wood to the temple this month, right? That's kind of, it wasn't actually ping pong balls, but it was like that, okay? It's kind of a lottery system. And then it says in verse 35, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, the chambers of the house of our God. And to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all of our towns where we labor. And the priests, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites where the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. They had a tithe and the tithe of that tithe. Um, Tithe just means tenth. Right? So these are percentages of money and fruit that they're collecting to give towards the work of God's people and to the house of God. And he goes on in verse 39, For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Right? So that's the summary. They started out with that. We're going to give to the work of the house of our God. They end here with a summary of all these details which are ordered for them in the Old Testament. This is how you support the work of the house of our God. And they finish there. Here's your summary. We will not neglect the house of our God. We're going to give to the house of our God. So what does that mean for us today, right? 
It's not like one temple in Jerusalem that we support like it was for them. How have those things been transformed? Uh, well, the Scripture's pretty clear that, that this aspect of the people of God has been transformed. In their day, they were worshiping at the central temple in Jerusalem, and it looked something like this. Um, this is actually more like Herod's temple that was during Jesus' time, which was an improvement done on, on their temple. Um, but they're building something like this, which is this glorious structure uh, that was devoted to the worship of God, to the teaching of God's word, to the sacrifices that illustrated God's character, uh, and to the singing of God's praises, right? So it was a place where they did kind of churchy things, right? Like I've said, kind of broadcasting who God is, inviting people to worship. Um, but it's not exactly the same for us today, right? T- today in the New Testament, it's clear again and again that Jesus is God's house. And Jesus says his people are his body and are God's house as well. So throughout the Gospels, Jesus is saying, I'm really the temple, Jesus is telling people. And then as he passes on his work to us, to the church, he says, you are God's temple. You are God's house. You are the household of God. Some, some references for this would be in 1 Corinthians 3, um, in Ephesians 2, in 1 Peter 2, in Hebrews 3 clearly lines out that we are God's house in the world. So what does it mean to commit ourselves to supporting God's house? Uh, I had a friend the other day that was asking me specifically, like, okay, uh, when we tithe, does all, so when we give a tenth of our money to support the church, does all of that tithe have to go to the local church, or is it okay if I give some of that to a missionary? Um, and I was kind of teasing him about it a little bit and saying, you should just give it all to me, you know, blah, blah, blah. But that's not how, <laughs> it's not how we do it. Um, and I told him, you know what? I'd like to say that it should all go to this church, but I just don't think the scripture's clear about that. Um, preachers like to say that, right? I mean, preachers always like to say, give everything you got to this church, because that's what they did in the Old Testament. They gave it to the local house. It wasn't really a local house. It was, a, it was one house for the whole nation. You know, so I mean, there's some differences We should be giving to support God's house. God's house is a worldwide ministry. And so I'm, this is scary, but I'm going to trust you with this, right? As much as I'd like to say you need to give every penny to this church in this location at this address, what I would say is that God wants you to give because you've been given to. He wants you to give to support God's house in the world. The building up of God's kingdom, the spread of, of the gospel, the work of God's house all over the world. That's what he wants you to give towards. Now, if all of you stop giving to this church next week, we're going to have a totally different sermon, right? (laughs) Things are going to change around here. But generally, you guys have been very generous. And I would say the priority is God's house. The priority is not God's house here, right? Um, Now, there is a principle, I would say, given aside to that, there's this principle in Galatians where it says, if you've been taught, share with your teachers, right? So to the degree that that you're being discipled here, being taught here, being taught by someone else, that you want to give to support that teaching. I mean, there's just a, a sense of, of justice there and fairness that's written into the New Testament that, that is clear. There, there's a relational connection there. But you're to give to support God's house. And God's house is Jesus' body, the church. So here's a, a giving explanation in the New Testament. We've got this general principle of the tenth, of the tithe, right? So like if you're, um, I wouldn't say it's an absolute um, you're absolutely in sin if you're not giving a tenth. I think it's just a, a good barometer to go, well, why am, why am I not giving? You know, Second um, Corinthians 9 says this. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly 
will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So what he's saying is if you sow into spiritual things, if you make yourself about uh, the growth of God's kingdom worldwide, you will reap the growth of God's kingdom worldwide. If you sow into the flesh, you will reap corruption, is what the Bible says. So if you spend all your money on stuff that's going to corrode, you're going to reap investments that corrode. But if you sow into spiritual things, you'll reap spiritual things. So notice it's not saying if you sow into spiritual things, you'll get a nicer house next week, right? I mean, there are, there are some general principles. I don't want to lie in the Old Testament about as, as we give generously, God blesses us. There are just some general principles there. But, but look at Jesus as the real model of Jesus gave up everything on this earth, right? So he was thinking about, he was thinking about others. So Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 9. He says in verse 7, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So we give because we truly believe that God has given to us. We are generous because we believe Jesus has been generous to us. Again, we don't give, just like we don't commit to get God to like us, we don't give to trick God into blessing us. We give because we think God has blessed us. We, we don't do it under compulsion, he says. We don't do it reluctantly, going, I don't really want to give, but I need to give so that I can earn more brownie points with God. No, we, we give because God has given to us. It's most clearly seen through the gospel. It's most clearly seen through who Jesus is. Um, so my, my question for you is, are you giving, first of all? Again, don't start to trick God into liking you. The question is, do you really believe that God loves you so much he gave you Jesus? And if you do believe that, there's going to there's gonna be some abundance that's going to come out of that. There's going to be some response in your life. And it's not just money, right? It's your time. Are you giving your time? Are you giving the gifts that God has given you? Are you spilling over in relationship and giving back to others because you believe God's been generous with you? That's what's so clearly illustrated in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. He says that the people that don't give, the, the servant that buries his talent, believes that the master is harsh and unfair. So, so when we hide and bury and hoard what we have and we don't share it, that's because we don't believe we can trust God. We don't believe he's really going to take care of us. We think we need to take care of ourselves. So our response should be to give because we believe God has given to us. We should commit to God's house. And a great promise that Jesus gives us in Matthew 16 is that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. It's, it's an aggressive action, right? We're not just giving to defend. We're giving to attack. We're giving to spread God's love and justice in the world. So as we wrap up, I just want to remind you again, the farmer's example of the chicken. The chicken, he's involved in breakfast, but the pig is committed, right? The pig is committed, uh, and that's what we see with Jesus. Is it okay to compare Jesus to a pig? I think um, it almost feels wrong, but obviously the illustration is Jesus gave everything. Jesus gave everything. So our responsive commitment is, is not to entice God to love us. It's not to trick God into knowing who we are and noticing us. We commit because we believe Jesus has committed everything to us. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond in a final song together.
God, we thank you that you have given your all. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I pray that we would be a people of commitment in the sense of living lives that are given over completely to you for your purposes and for your glory. And we pray that we would do that for right reasons because of all this, because of all that you've done. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.